Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Evacuating Gaza. Some Americans today finally allowed to leave. Plus, what Israel is saying about the latest airstrikes and Iran's recent threat to Israel. President Biden hailing the latest evacuation breakthrough. Who's behind the effort and what he's saying about hostages still held by Hamas. Could Republicans' effort to offset the cost of Israel aid backfire? That's what a new report suggests. House Speaker Johnson is responding. And in New York, Donald Trump Jr. takes the stand. Why his testimony is significant to the Attorney General's case and who else testified. Some Americans today finally allowed to leave Gaza and another attack in a refugee camp targeting Hamas leaders. And today's Arian Pastar has an update on the Israel-Hamas war. Over 300 foreign passport holders left Gaza through the Rafah crossing into Egypt on Wednesday. Some injured Palestinians were also allowed to leave. A U.S. passport holder describes what it was like inside Gaza. My name is Dr. Fatem Al-Hajan. I came in Gaza, Palestine here since three months ago for a visit. After that, the war goes up. We spent here three months without any minimum parameter for the life. No water, no food, no shelter, nothing, nothing. The U.S. State Department on Wednesday said it can't give any number on how many Americans left Gaza so far. The department said in total 400 American citizens are in Gaza trying to leave. A reporter asked if Hamas is getting anything from the U.S. for letting its citizens go. The United States is not in a position and has not provided any concessions at all to Hamas. Egypt, Israel and Hamas brokered a deal saying 7,500 foreign passport holders would be allowed to leave Gaza within the next two weeks. And the U.S. State Department previously said the reason they can't just all leave right now is because Hamas doesn't let them leave. Also on Wednesday, another attack hit the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza. An Israeli army spokesperson said there was a very senior Hamas commander in that area. Israel's military also commented on a previous strike on the camp, which killed a Hamas commander, saying the fact that the attack destroyed tunnels under the camp proves that Hamas is using civilians in the camp as human shields. Hamas is responding to the attacks, threatening to seriously hurt Israeli hostages. The Palestinian Hamas leader says Israel would pay with the life of their hostages and that the hostages will be exposed to destruction and death. The Iranian regime on Wednesday also threatening Israel, indicating it may expand the conflict. If the genocide and war crimes against civilians are not stopped immediately, then we are very close to the point in the Middle East where a decisive and significant decision will be made. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Wednesday said Israel would continue until the Hamas terrorist organization is defeated. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Amid the escalating ground offensive in Gaza, President Biden today hailing the latest breakthrough to get Americans out. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent, Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. What is the president's reaction and what's next? 
Good evening to us as well, Tiff. So President Biden, while giving a speech in Minnesota today, applauded U.S. leadership in the efforts to allow not only just wounded Gazans, but also foreign nationals, including Americans, to leave Gaza. Here's what he said. Watch. American citizens are able to exit today as part of the first group of probably over a thousand working nonstop to get Americans out of Gaza. This is the result of intense and urgent American diplomacy with our partners in the region. And Biden says that this process will continue over the coming days. And he also says that what made it happen was he personally spent a lot of time speaking with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, as well as President Sisi of Egypt. He also thanked Qatar for working closely with the U.S. in negotiations to eventually make this happen. Meanwhile, on the situation in Gaza on the ground, President Biden says he's pushing for more aid to get into Gaza. He also says that he's grieving for the innocent lives lost both in Israel and Gaza, but also stressed again that Israel does have the right to defend itself. Watch. We're going to continue to affirm that Israel has the right to respond responsibility to defend its citizens from terror. We grieve for those deaths and continue to grieve for the Israeli children and mothers who are brutally slaughtered by Hamas terrorists. And when it comes to the American hostages still in the hands of Hamas, President Biden says the administration is still working around the clock to try to get them back, adding that he has not given up any hope. Back to you. Iris, thank you for that update. And the House is moving a $14 billion Israel aid package and trying to offset the cost by stripping funds from the IRS. Despite Speaker Mike Johnson's goal to avoid adding to the national debt, a new report estimates the bill could do the opposite. NTD's Melina Weiskup brings us more from Capitol Hill. A common theme of this Republican-led House is getting government spending under control, even when it comes to providing aid for Israel. House Speaker Mike Johnson's plan to offset the $14 billion cost of the Israel aid is to offset it by cutting funding from the IRS. That's a plan that Democrats aren't happy about. There is no further negotiation around what the spending numbers should look like because that was already done in the spring. The new speaker knows perfectly well that if you want to help Israel, you can't propose legislation that is full of poison pills. And now a new report by the Congressional Budget Office suggests that this plan to save money could actually be counterproductive and cost up to $12 billion, adding that to the national deficit because the report suggests that by cutting funding to the IRS, they would make it more difficult to collect revenue. But despite this, Speaker Mike Johnson is moving ahead with this plan to hold this vote on the Israel aid package as soon as tomorrow. Speaker Johnson responded to the CBO report saying we don't put much credence in what this CBO says. The House will also take up a few other Israel-related bills this week, like putting sanctions on foreign support for terrorist groups like Hamas and condemning the support for terrorist groups like Hamas on college campuses. And as for this evening, the House is taking votes on whether or not to punish members in Congress. There are two censor resolution votes going on this evening, one against Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and another one against Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Now, there's also another vote on whether or not to expel George Santos from Congress altogether. It will be interesting to see how members from both parties are voting on those members of their own parties, especially that vote on Santos because it was introduced by a New York Republican. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. 
A student from Cornell University in New York has been arrested. Authorities say he posted online threats calling for the deaths of Jewish people. 21-year-old Joseph Dai is a junior at the university. Dai's parents said he suffers from mental illness. He made his first court appearance in upstate New York today. If convicted, he could face a maximum term of five years in prison. Donald Trump Jr. testifying today. He was authorized to run his father's empire during the presidency, and he did, ending in 2021. Today, after a late afternoon arrival, he took the stand in the civil fraud case brought by Attorney General Letitia James against him, his brother Eric, and his father. She alleges they conspired to exaggerate their assets by billions of dollars. The estimates were given to banks, insurers, and others to secure loans and make deals. We turn now to NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards, who was at the courthouse during his testimony. Arlene, the AG's team has spent a significant amount of time establishing Donald Jr.'s authority in the company from 2017 to 2021. What else will they likely aim to establish? That's right, Tiffany. The AG's team questioned Donald Jr. extensively about his role in the company during the time that his father was in the White House. He was responsible for signing off on statements of financial condition during that time period. I am expecting the team to question him about his role in the valuations of certain Trump properties, which Attorney General Letitia James has said in court filings that one property, for example, was valued at roughly six times the appraised value. He has testified that he has no knowledge of ex or expertise in accounting principles or rules that would have needed to be followed in the preparation of the statements. And he has stated several times that he relied on the accountants that the company paid millions of dollars to follow those principles. And since his testimony was delayed, Donald Jr. will continue his testimony tomorrow. Who else testified today? Well, a former Trump Organization vice president, David Orwitz, completed his testimony in the morning and testified that Ivanka Trump had significant involvement in loan negotiations for two of the properties. Also, Michael McCarty, CEO of Morgan Stanley Bank and the expert witness for Attorney General Letitia James, he testified about the financial implications of inflated assets. Now, his testimony is expected to help the judge determine the size of the fine that the Trumps are facing. And regarding the implications, did McCarty specifically testify about the impact of the inflated assets on the lenders he received loans from? Well, according to McCarty, Trump's misrepresentations cost the banks $168 million in potential interest. But it should be noted that number was reduced to $82.8 million on cross-examination. And also, Judge Arthur Angeron, who is presiding over this trial, stated in a prior ruling that the banks did make, quote, lots of money. But he has said the inflated numbers also cost the banks lots of money because it caused the risk to be higher and therefore the interest rates were also higher. Hmm. And now other members of the Trump family are expected to testify. What can you tell us about the upcoming appearances? Eric Trump, uh, Donald Jr.'s brother, was expected to begin his testimony on Thursday, but that may be pushed back to Friday. Now, he was supposed to be followed by Ivanka Trump on Friday, but she has filed an appeal to Judge Angoron's ordering her to testify. And Donald Trump himself is expected to testify on Monday. Quite the lineup. Well, Arlene, thank you so much for your insights. All right. Thank you, Tiffany. 
GOP Congressman Ken Buck is saying that he won't run for re-election next year. In a video released on social media, Buck criticizes his own party for challenging the 2020 election and promoting the idea of a weaponized justice system. Our nation is on a collision course with reality, and a steadfast commitment to truth, even uncomfortable truths, is the only way forward. Buck's take on the election and the January 6th Capitol protest has set him against some of his colleagues and constituents. His statement comes shortly after Congresswoman Kay Granger also announced her leave from the position, which she has held for decades. The 80-year-old is the chair of the House Appropriations Committee. Granger is planning to finish her term and work closely with the newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson. The House Oversight Committee is presenting evidence that President Biden received $40,000 from his family business. It released bank records of the transactions between the Biden family and its Chinese business associates. Chairman James Comer explained how the money ended up in Joe Biden's account in September 2017. Not only did he lie about his son Hunter making money in China, but it also turns out that $40,000 in laundered China money landed in Joe Biden's bank account in the form of a personal check. First, Northern International Capital, a Chinese company associated with CEFC, wired $5 million to Hudson West Three, a joint venture established by Hunter Biden and a CEFC associate. Then Hudson West Three sent $400,000 to an entity owned and controlled by Hunter Biden. Next, Hunter Biden wired $150,000 to Lion Hall Group, a company owned by James and Sarah Biden. Sarah Biden then withdrew $50,000 in cash from Lion Hall Group. Later the same day, she deposited it into her and James Biden's personal checking account. A few days later, Sarah Biden cut a check to Joe Biden for $40,000. The memo line of the check said loan repayment. Comer added that even if the $40,000 check was a loan repayment from brother James Biden, it still shows how Joe Biden benefited from his family cashing in on his name with money from China. This new allegation could push forward Biden's impeachment inquiry. The committee previously made public a $200,000 check, also from James Biden to Joe Biden. It was dated 2018 and was also labeled as a loan repayment. Coming up, the U.S. Federal Reserve holds interest rates steady after a two-day policy meeting. Could rate cuts be on the way? Orange juice prices are on the rise. We'll have more on what's causing the increase. And a luxury California home selling for only $1.5 million. The catch? It contains residue from a now inactive meth lab. Details after the break. Welcome back. The U.S. Federal Reserve held interest rates steady today after a two-day monetary policy meeting. But the central bank left the door open to future increases. NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with an analyst for further insight. And our joining us is Joseph Trevisani, Senior Analyst at FX Street. So, Joseph, to start off, I, I want to ask you about the remarks from Powell. What do you think went into the decision of actually leaving the benchmark rate unchanged? 
Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really not surprised that they did. I don't think anybody in the markets are. They have seen progress. I mean, the Powell said, Mr. Powell said it several times. They have seen progress yeah. on inflation. Job creation has come off a little bit. So although they're not going to come out and say that they're happy, that they're satisfied with the progress, I think that's a real uh, opinion within the Fed. So I don't think they're proposing to do anything, really. But again, as we've said a number of times before, they can't come out and say that. Now, Powell, in his re remarks uh, after the rate decision, he left uh, the door open to future rate hikes. Absolutely. Um, but, but, you know, do you think personally that the Fed is done as of right now? I do, and I've, I've thought so for several months. It is absolutely necessary for the Fed to rhetorically leave the door open, as you, if you will, to further increases. It needs to meet, make sure that it doesn't get, and we've spoken about this in the past, that you don't get a huge move down in Treasury rates, which of course would affect market rates, which would come up. The Fed doesn't want that. So it is absolutely necessary that they leave the impression, officially, that they still could hike rates again if inflation doesn't do what they want it to do. Okay, just to explain for us, uh, if the Fed is done, in your words, then wh why must uh, Powell keep another rate hike possibility open? Because what will happen if, if Mr. Powell comes out and says, we're, we're happy with what uh, we, the work we've done, we're happy with the impact it's had on the economy, and we're finished. The immediate effect would be a surge in Treasury prices and a fall in Treasury rates. That would bring down commercial rates across the board. And that is what the Fed doesn't want because it's very necessary to keep those rates high. They are a, a major component of the Fed's fight against inflation. It's very important that the actual rates in the economy don't start to come off until the Fed is ready for them to do so. And that's why. Speaking of that, uh, when do you think uh, we're going to see rate cuts? Well, you know, it's a very difficult point right now because certainly for almost all analysts up until the mid-year, they were anticipating a recession end of this year, beginning of next year. It is not there in the statistics as of yet. It still should be the most logical assumption. So if I would say now it's pushed off until the second half of next year right now. And just one final question. If we're going to see a rate cut, what is that going to coincide with? Uh, a recession? Some, uh, some crisis? Uh, what do you I think? I think it would probably coincide with a negative reading in a, for a month or two or maybe a bit more in the job market. That has been the Fed's focus for a long time now on what is the job market doing? What is that telling us about the strength of the economy and the strength of the consumer? One of the things that is absolutely maybe the thing that's absolutely supported the economy and consumers has been a strong job market. Wage increases, even if they're trailing inflation, they're still out there and you can find a job. Once that changes, once that diminishes, the Fed will start to worry about a recession. Well, all right. Thank you so much again. As always, Joseph Trivisani. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good day. 
The price of orange juice has reached its highest levels since futures trading began in New York in 1966. NTD's Christina Corona has details on what's driving the increase. Orange juice is the latest item to succumb to higher prices at the grocery store, with futures of this staple reaching an all-time high this week. The price of orange juice futures rose to $3.83 per pound due to adverse weather conditions and hurricanes causing a significant drop in Florida's orange crop production, reaching its lowest levels in nearly eight decades. According to CNBC, orange juice futures prices have surged by 13% this month and a staggering 78% year-to-date. This increase can be attributed to last year's severe weather events and hurricanes in Florida, which is is the primary orange juice producer in the United States. A freeze at the end of the previous year also negatively impacted the Florida orange juice industry. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, or USDA, forecasted in July that Florida's orange production for the year would be approximately 15.9 million boxes, a 70% reduction from the 2020 through 2021 season. The market for frozen orange juice concentrate has also experienced a substantial price hike, rising by 270 percent since 2020 due to weather-related issues and diseases. Other exporters such as Brazil and Mexico also lowered their estimated yields for the year, citing crop difficulties from warmer weather. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. A luxury California home listed for only $1.5 million. The reason? Contamination from a now inactive meth lab. NTD's David Lamb reports. This $1.55 million house is up for sale in San Jose, California, but you can see that it's all fenced up because there's a big caveat. The realtor listing says the Silicon Valley home comes with an inactive meth lab and has not been clear of meth smoke contamination. Costs to remediate it will be transferred to the buyer. The six-bedroom, three-and-a-half bathroom, and 2,700-square-foot home has been listed on Redfin for over two weeks. According to the Office for Victims of Crime, normal cleaning will not remove methamphetamine drug chemicals, which can cause cancer and damage to organs through constant exposure. The home was previously owned by Peter Karasev, who was arrested earlier this year and charged for allegedly possessing explosives and blowing up electrical transformers in San Jose. In March, FBI and law enforcement investigated the two-story home and evacuated residents at the time. Karasev lived with his wife and children. The realtor site says there's no access to the property before being cleared by county health guidelines. One of the neighbors told me that she might have heard people trespassing into the backyard and into the house in the past couple of weeks. Now she hopes the next owner would clean up the house and even for the neighborhood to help maintain the front area. In San Jose, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Coming up, why are people tearing down posters of Israeli hostages? A rabbi says hating Jews is about hating values. How it's related to BLM and what he says the solution is. Is a strong Israel in the best interests of the U.S.? Find out what the House Speaker, a Middle East expert, and a congressional candidate have to say. And what are the potential outcomes of the Israel-Hamas conflict? An international military strategist analyzes several possible scenarios after the break.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Donald Trump Jr. took the stand in the New York civil fraud trial against his family's business empire, which he ran during the presidency. Attorney General Letitia James will continue to question him tomorrow. A number of Americans, along with hundreds of foreign passport holders, now making their way out of the embattled Gaza Strip. The White House today cheering the latest breakthrough. A student from Cornell University is facing up to five years behind bars. Authorities arrested him for posting online threats calling for the deaths of Jewish people. What is causing this anti-Semitism and what's the solution? We spoke with a rabbi and the managing director of the Coalition for Jewish Values who traces the history of anti-Semitism and what it has to do with buzzwords like intersectionality. Rabbi Yaakov Menken, thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. Rabbi, to begin, as the Israel-Hamas war continues, we're seeing a wave of anti-Semitism around the world. We had this mob at the Russian airport, universities here in America. Why are we seeing American universities tolerating anti-Semitism? Well, the, the problem is that the woke left has decided that anti-Semitism is part of their intersectional agenda, and university administrators are taking entirely too casual an approach. It used to be that American education meant education in character, values, and morals as well. Uh, it's not enough that the universities have abdicated. Now they're actually working against values, and that's obviously very harmful. And a student at Cornell was arrested in connection with anti-Semitism on the campus. How are Jewish students in America feeling? Where can they go if they don't feel safe here? Well, that's, you know, that's obviously the big problem. Uh, what the anti-Israel advocates don't realize is that every time something like that happens on an American campus, people move to Israel. Uh, that Israel is the one place where Jews feel that uh, the government will absolutely protect them no matter what happens. Over here, sadly, you're seeing the opposite happening. Uh, what's going on, uh, it's not just Cornell, obviously. Uh, Today or, or yesterday, a Jewish student at Harvard was surrounded by people yelling, shame, shame, shame. What they don't realize is they were doing exactly what the Nazis did in 1933. I want to zoom in on that. There are now open calls for killing Jews or for Israel not to exist as a country. Given the horrors that we saw from the Holocaust, how is this narrative not only accepted but even welcomed by some groups? Well, what people forget is, you know, the one of the things that the Jewish left did tragically wrong was treat the Holocaust as an aberration. The Holocaust is part of a long continuum of anti-Semitism. Barbarians have always hated Jews. They've always hated values. And since Jews got the values first, they hate the Jews first. Once they're done with Jews, obviously, uh, the Jews are the canary in the coal mine. Persecution of Christians follows shortly thereafter. These are places when there's a place where there are no Jews left, they're persecuting Christians and anybody else who supports traditional values. And that, by the way, includes persecuting Uyghur Muslims in China. And your group actually has a video calling out BLM. Tell us about that. Well, Black Lives Matter, from the beginning, they stated their anti-Semitism. Uh, the organizers said, if we don't get rid of Israel, we're doomed. We stand with Palestine, etc. 
in the wake of the horrors of October 7, we saw Black Lives Matter chapters around the country openly celebrating the barbarism, the massacres, the rapes, the beheadings. Obviously, uh, this is something for which the major sports teams, which supported Black Lives Matter, and the major corporations, which gave big tranches of cash to Black Lives Matter, they need to be called out on that. They need to withdraw their support. They need to declare that they have withdrawn their support because these movements are not about actual value of black lives or anybody's lives. They're actually about celebrating death. And following the war and the amount of hostages being held, we're seeing video of people tearing down the posters of those who are held hostage. What's your understanding of the motivation here? Uh, it's Joseph Goebbels and the big lie, put it, to put it simply. Uh, they don't want to confront the reality. They, they want to lie about the situation. They want to claim that Israel is the one committing genocide when they're facing a genocidal enemy. Uh, they do not want to face the reality of these hostages and the hostages have to be released. Oh no, all of a sudden they're calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. There was a humanitarian ceasefire on October 6. Hamas declared war in a truly horrific way. And the only way for there to be any progress towards world peace is for Hamas as a terror organization to be completely eradicated. But the left doesn't want to hear that. And expanding on that last part, what is the solution here? Is it awareness, our education system? What is it? Well, uh, obviously, those who favor sanity. I mean, these, these folks on campuses, they are obviously a small minority. But because they're being very loud, they're being very vocal, university administrators are being cowed. There has to be pushback. There has to be pushback from Congress. There has to be pushback from students who value decency. There has to be pushback from faculty. We're already seeing donors say, oh, no, we're not going to be giving you any more money until your university comes into line. The problem is that these universities are sitting on such large endowments that a lot of them don't really care yet. Hopefully, that will soon change. Rabbi Yaakov Menken, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. New House Speaker Mike Johnson says America must stand with Israel for both religious and practical reasons. NTD explores how a strong, secure Israel can benefit the U.S. In a recent interview, New House Speaker Mike Johnson emphasized the importance of U.S. support for Israel. From the perspective of his own faith, he cited the book of Genesis, in which God says he will bless the nation that blesses Israel and curse the nation that curses Israel. Johnson said, quote, this is pretty black and white. And from a pragmatic standpoint, Johnson called Israel a stabilizing force in the Middle East because of the country's values. It's the only democracy in the region. Experts say that Israel is indeed America's most reliable strategic ally in the area. Israel serves as an anchor for the United States, which has enabled America to even entertain the thought of pivoting out away from the Middle East to Asia. Middle East expert Barack Siner says Israel has proven its reliability over time. In 1981, Israel bombed an Iraqi nuclear reactor using U.S. fighter jets over concerns that the reactor was part of a nuclear weapons program. In 2007, Israel bombed a suspected Syrian nuclear reactor after American intelligence suggested it could be used to produce materials for nuclear weapons. 
Siner says the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has ties to other global conflicts, particularly those instigated by China, Russia, and Iran. He says there's a sense America doesn't want to be the world's policemen, so China, Russia, and Iran are stepping in. They're all watching to see because that informs their reactions in other areas of the globe. They're observing to what extent are Israel's allies going to be supportive of Israel's military responses? Um, to what extent are they going to tolerate attacks on U.S. army bases? At what point will allied forces say, you know what, deterrence against Iran is not working, we now need to escalate this. Senior believes the U.S. has so far made very limited responses to the aggression by Iran's proxies. He says China, Russia, and Iran are taking note of America's actions, especially its treatment of Israel. We've supported Israel since 1948, and when we make a commitment to somebody, and it's endured for 75 years, uh, I can't see a, a good reason to change that commitment. Marty Dolan is an investment banker who's done business in Israel and is currently running for the Democratic nomination for New York State's 16th Congressional District. Dolan says American leaders feel it's good to have a presence so far overseas, and he doesn't see a change in America's support for Israel. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. What are the potential outcomes of the Israel-Hamas conflict and what are the risks of other countries becoming involved? We're joined by an international military strategist who offers his analysis of several possible scenarios. Colonel Darren Gobb, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks, Tiffany. Always, always a pleasure to join you. As this Israel-Hamas war continues, both sides, Israel and Hamas, are vowing to destroy the other. How do you see this war ending? Well, that's always the hardest question for anybody who's involved like I am with uh, military strategies and have developed those over many years in regions of the, of the world. Uh, how does it end? I would love to know that answer, but uh, when it comes to specifically Hamas, this one, I think, clearly ends with Israel achieving its strategic objectives of removing Hamas as the uh, the lead agent, the governing authorities in, inside the Gaza Strip. And the question then becomes, what happens to the Gaza Strip after that? I also would expect that you would see Hamas warriors, terrorists, thugs, whatever you want to call them, uh, move to other locations to probably join other uh, mercenary armies that work for Iran, like Hezbollah, because they are united in common cause. And Colonel, some are calling for a ceasefire, including the U.S. Now, Israel is saying that would be a win for Hamas. Is a ceasefire even possible, given that Hamas wants to destroy Israel? At, at this point, a ceasefire is not possible, not, not if Israel wants to achieve what it needs to achieve in the Gaza Strip. They gave up governance of that region in 2005. And since then, it has been nothing but a thorn in their side as a security problem. And Hamas made this first move, really, on October 7th at this at this scale. So now they are going to be the ones who deal with the consequences, while also, unfortunately, acting like the terrorists they are, even with the Palestinian citizens inside the Gaza Strip. And now when it comes to the calls for ceasefire, it seems part of the concern are the hostages. Now, Americans are among those. At the same time, Americans are among the first foreigners leaving Gaza. How do you see host hostage diplomacy playing a role in this war? 
Well, hostages have been part of this strategy from the beginning. That's why Hamas took them. They wanted to use them as leverage or bargaining chips in order to try to potentially de-escalate Israel in their response. Uh, the difference was that Israel said, we're not doing that. Israel's been smart in how they've done it by taking their time to be able to get to a position where they have the intelligence and information necessary to help recover some hostages here and there. That is, that is extraordinarily necessary. But uh, the rest of this I see as American citizens potentially move out of the, the Rafah gate and, and potentially other hostages get released, is you see the hands of Qatar, Turkey, and maybe, maybe other countries getting involved, by the way, these countries where the actual leadership of the PLO reside. They don't live with the people they lead. They live in mansions elsewhere, and they make a lot of money. And Colonel, Israel is saying a Hamas terrorist was hiding in a refugee camp, and by taking out this terrorist, they also took out some civilians. Is there a situation where civilians won't be harmed? Well, right now, unfortunately, because of how Hamas operates, and frankly, Hezbollah and other type of organizations, they hide among the refugees. They hide, they hide in uh, mosques and everything else. So uh, it's expected that this is going to happen, no matter how. We know it's terrible, regardless. But uh, every single death you see of a, of a civilian like this is at the hands of Hamas, ultimately. It is, it is their fault. So uh, I don't think Israel is going to stop what they're doing because of Hamas's tactics. And it's actually because of those tactics that they have to keep going. And it's the reason why they're moving the pace they are. Israel is doing this very smart, which is moving slowly. Timing and tempo in military operations are always critical. It's when do you do it and how fast. And in this case, slower is a little bit better, and it's better for the Israeli army, too. And now there are talks of this war escalating beyond just Israel and Hamas. How do we make sure that doesn't happen? Well, some of the initial steps we've taken are already part of that, which is moving carrier strike groups into the region and positioning them in, in critical locations necessary to interdict things like what happened with Yemen when they launched drones and cruise missiles against Israel, presumably, where they got shot down. So, so that's part of it. Other part of this, of course, is continuous diplomacy with nations throughout the region, because it's, it's not the Middle East and, and that they all get along just because they're there. There are different tensions and relationships that we can take advantage of to make sure that they recognize the fact that, like in Saudi Arabia, a growing conflict is not in their best interest either. Now, it's already growing to the north, to Hezbollah, in, in some capacity. It, that's pretty clear. We hope it stops there, that's for sure. But uh, it seems unlikely. But uh, I think if we stay in communications and keep those lines open in, in, in diplomacy, we, we could be successful, but we have to send a message, too, of overwhelming force to defend American forces if necessary. A lot at stake here for sure. Colonel Darren Gobb, thank you so much for your time. Coming up, who's watching the World Series? After a disastrous Game 1 rating, the numbers for Games 2 and 3 are in, and they're not looking good. We'll have those when we return. Welcome back. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with an early look at who might be playing for college football's national championship. 
That's right, Tiff. Ohio State, Georgia, Michigan, and Florida State are the top four teams in the committee's initial college football playoff rankings released last night. All four are undefeated, while the other undefeated Power 5 team, Washington, sits right behind them in fifth. Now, even though there's only room for four teams, Washington really controls its own destiny as Ohio State plays Michigan at the end of the month, meaning one of them has to lose. That could come sooner though, both for Michigan and Georgia, as both teams have benefited from less than difficult schedules thus far. The Wolverines still have to play 11th ranked Penn State, while the Bulldogs face three top 20 teams in a row, and that's before a possible showdown against Alabama in the SEC title game. And in the NFL, the Las Vegas Raiders have cleaned house, firing head coach Josh McDaniels, general manager Dave Ziegler, and even offensive coordinator Mick Lombardi. The move comes a day after the team lost to the LA Chargers on Monday Night Football to put them at 3-5 on the season. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has 13 games planned, including a battle of LA as the Lakers play the Clippers though the newly acquired James Harden won't be suiting up. And on the ice, the NHL has four games on, featuring the 2022 champion Colorado Avalanche, who are off to a 6-2 start. They host the St. Louis Blues. And finally in baseball, it's Game 5 of the World Series, the few who are actually tuning in, of course. While Game 1 was the least viewed Game 1 in recorded history, Games two and three were even worse. The two contests each drew just over eight million viewers, the lowest for any World Series game since viewer ratings were recorded starting in 1969. So for the few of you who will actually tune in tonight, it could be a clincher as Texas holds a 3-1 lead playing at Arizona. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.